The writer Howard Taylor once noted, it's always safest to never bet on nobody being stupid. Hi there, and welcome to Here's a Thought, the blogcast for people who overthink. I'm your host, Jan M. Flynn, and overthinking is my superpower. The problem is that there are times I wish I could shut it off. If you, too, are a power ruminator, you know what that's like. So, once a week, I offer you a brief break from the voices in your head by listening to the ones in mine. This week, I've been thinking about something my sister told me many years ago. Everybody has their stupid side. Smart people know it. That remark stuck with me. If it's true, and my life experience suggests it is, we all might want to give a thought to our stupid side every so often, because maybe that way it'll be less apt to sneak up on us. People who meet me get the impression I'm smart, and by standard measures, academic grades, SAT scores, the intelligence tests I didn't even know I was taking in early elementary school, that should be correct. I'm genuinely interested in people, which leads to a fortunate tendency. At social gatherings, I'm more interested in finding out about other people than talking about myself. People tend to come away thinking that I'm intelligent simply because I listen to them. The reality is that I am capable of being breathtakingly, jaw-droppingly dim, as in dumb as a bag of hammers, stupid. Luckily, I'm not talking about stupid on the level of losing a spacecraft, like NASA and JPL, Jet Propulsion Laboratory, did in 1998 when the $125 million Mars Climate Orbiter went permanently AWOL because somebody forgot to convert English measurements into metric. I'm forever grateful to those rocket scientists at NASA and JPL who make me feel so much better about my ineptitude with math. Now, I'm referring to things that I've done in the course of a normal day using my allegedly normal brain that were so inane, I still can't explain them. Socrates said, the unexamined life is not worth living. In today's episode, I examine the moments in my life when my intellect descended to a level somewhere below the average guppy. Here's how I rank my duh moments. I like to rate them on a scale of 1 to 10, 1 meaning momentarily embarrassing, and 10 meaning natural selection may have failed. I offer you, dear listener, 13 such instances, grouped more or less in order of the threat they posed to my survival. First, three accidental medical experiments. Score between 1 and 3. It is only through the grace of my guardian angel or whatever deity watches over fools that my goofs resulted in nothing more than bruised skin or damaged dignity. 1. I was sitting on the sofa, immersed in a novel, and drinking a soda. I rarely drink soda, and this one was in one of those retro heavy glass bottles. Finishing the soda, still absorbed in my reading, I absentmindedly sucked all the air out of the bottle and allowed the resultant suction to draw in my upper lip, sort of like a fleshy plug. And then I left the bottle there hanging from my upper lip, while I continued reading. It was a really good book. A half hour later, when I got to the end of part two and needed a bathroom break, I was surprised by how difficult it was to dislodge the bottle. At last, my lip escaped the bottle's neck with a definite thunk. It wasn't until I saw myself in the mirror that I understood the effects of that much negative pressure on soft tissue. It turns out that human lips when subjected to distortion via a vacuum of sufficient strength and over a certain period of time, 
will retain the shape and size imposed by said vacuum. The advice nurse I called had some difficulty deciphering my words as my mouth now resembled a duck's, a duck who'd lost a bar fight since my lip had also turned dark purple. Being a veteran nurse, she didn't bother asking why I had done such a thing. After several hours of sitting and applying a succession of ice packs per her instructions, I could come up with no explanation. Years later, I still can't. 2. Many people have come to grief while using ladders. It is only due to entirely unearned good fortune that I am not among them. I was painting a bedroom. The ladder I stood on was just a little too far from the bookcase, which was covered in slick plastic drop cloths, and I needed to reach behind it. Moving the ladder would mean rearranging all my stuff, including the paint bucket, climbing down, repositioning, climbing back up, etc. I would have called for help, but I was home alone. I know, I know. But if I could just reach out with one hand a little farther, no, not quite, just a little farther, if I could just grab... As I lay on the floor underneath the toppled bookcase, I calculated how much it was going to cost to replace the paint-saturated carpet, more than it would have cost to pay a pro to do the painting for me, I reckoned. Three. If you have a colonoscopy coming up, I can offer you this advice from personal experience. When they tell you the prep is the worst part, they're not kidding. At some point during your 24-hour fast, you will be asked to glug down an ungodly amount of liquid that has the power to clean out the New York sewer system. The instructions will inform you that the liquid will, quote, take effect in anywhere from 45 minutes to four hours. That's good, because you're at work, and this will give you plenty of time to get home before all intestinal hell breaks loose. Do not, I repeat, do not, assume this means you have time for a quick pedicure at that cute walk-in salon that's right on the way. Moving on, two restaurant-associated mishaps score between two and four. These score as high as they do not because of any physical risk they entailed, but on the off chance that it is actually possible to die of embarrassment. One, my husband is an actor, so he's friends with a number of RFPs, rather famous persons. Some years ago, while on vacation in a tropical paradise, we had lunch with one such RFP who was there on location. He'd recommended the place, we'll call it Dan's, as it was one of his favorites. He'd gotten to know the owner. This was my first time meeting this RFP, and I was trying very hard to play it cool. Yet I felt the need to contribute to the conversation, rather than sit there like a lump. So when he described his new friendship with the proprietor of Dan's restaurant, I brightly asked the owner's name. Um, said the RFP. Dan? Two, at a fancy restaurant in a different city, I wore a dress I loved for its swirling skirt made of tissue-thin silk. Before the entrees arrived, I excused myself to the ladies' room. After washing my hands and touching up my hair and lipstick, I gave my reflection an approving glance in the mirror before sailing out into the main dining room. If only I'd turned around while still in front of the mirror. I heard an intake of breath from a nearby diner at the same time as I detected an odd draft coming from behind me. That's how I discovered that, while rearranging myself in the loo, I'd accidentally stuffed the back of my skirt into my undies. Walking backward at high speed in high heels is no easy feat, especially when trying to conceal your half-naked arse. It's a wonder I eat out anymore. 
Three tell-me-you've-done-this-too moments scores three to five. One, I can't be the only one who has ever had to gate-check their roll-aboard suitcase because the plane's overhead bins are too small. And then, you know, you get off the plane at your destination and walk right past the a la carte trolley that has your suitcase on it. You have the sense of having forgotten something as you trudge up the jetway, but you don't figure out why until you're halfway down the terminal and notice that you don't have your luggage. You've never done that? Well, okay. Two. Surely you've done this. You enter a dressing room in a boutique to try on a few items. The store is small, and so is the dressing room, which leads directly into the main retail area. But it's fine. There's a louvered wooden door with a magnetic latch to guard your privacy. The stretchy pants you thought were the right size turn out to be rather tight. Really tight. So tight that when you get them up to your knees, you're not sure you can get them any higher. You have a choice. Give up, roll them back down your ankles, and go on to the next garment, or give them one last tug. You crouch to get leverage. You tug. Mightily. The pants do not budge. Instead, your hands fly off the waistband, their momentum causing them to smack you in the face. You lose your balance and fall against the door. The magnetic latch gives way. You crash sideways into public view. Then you crab walk back into the dressing room, with your knees still welded together by the damn pants. Oh, come on, that's never happened to you. Moving on, an I'm-really-not-a-sex-worker moment, score six. Like my husband, I too once made a living as an actor, and like many a thespian with classical theater training, I made most of my money doing TV commercials. What that meant was that I went on a lot of auditions, which were usually held in low-rent casting offices in the less reputable regions of Hollywood. Most casting calls were held in the afternoon, but sometimes they went late enough that they converged with the neighborhood's evening transformation from seedy to sinister. One early Friday evening, I was happily heading to a callback. That meant I'd already passed the first audition, and the producers wanted to see me again. I was one step closer to landing the gig. Dressed for a dinner party, as per the commercial setting, I hurried from my parking spot on a side street down Hollywood Boulevard toward the casting office. A car pulled up beside me. A smiling man within rolled down the passenger side window, leaned over, and asked, Are you working? Excited about the audition, I chirruped, I hope to be. It wasn't until I was sitting in the waiting room that I realized the man in the car had mistaken my profession. That explained the baffled look the would-be John gave me as I strode cheerfully away. Next, three stupid animal tricks. Score, seven to eight. I am an animal lover, a defender of wildlife, a staunch admirer of our fellow creatures. Mostly, that has given me great joy. On a few occasions, it has led me into questionable situations, ones that could have gone very wrong very fast if I hadn't been lucky. One, back in my college years, I had a summer job at a theme park that included a fair-sized menagerie. I made friends with the girl whose job it was to take care of the wild cats. How she got the job, I have no idea, since she displayed neither associated expertise nor good judgment. One morning, as we were goofing around before the park opened, she said, Hey, you want to pet the cougar? I gave the only reasonable answer. Sure. A few minutes later, I tiptoed into the cougar's enclosure, where the big cat lay on its side in a splash of sunshine. It wore a collar with a leash held by the handler, 
who looked as though she might be having second thoughts about the wisdom of this plan. So was I. The cougar's expression suggested we might be right, but the handler and I were young and headstrong, a.k.a. stupid. Neither of us wanted to back down. Kneel down by his back and just pet him on his side, she said. I noticed her free hand was clenched into a fist. He gets out of line, I bop him on the nose, she explained. I wasn't sure how much influence either the leash or her puny human fist was going to have on a 100-pound Canadian cougar. By now, though, I was entranced by the animal's beauty. Slowly, I reached out and stroked the dense, buttery soft fur on his flank. The cougar raised his head and gave me a look that clearly said, I'll allow it, but move one hair of mine in the wrong direction and watch what happens. Reaching out one more time, I saw the big cat's eyes narrow. The handler cocked her fist and, I noticed, withdrew to the end of the leash. Maybe he's had enough, I whispered as I gingerly backed away. I got out of the enclosure in one piece, buzzing with the thrill of having gotten to pet a cougar. I didn't see the handler again for a couple of weeks. When I did, she wasn't wearing her uniform and her right forearm was swathed in thick bandages. I'm just here to pick up my last check, she told me. Bleeping cougar. She didn't actually say bleeping. Anyway, if you have to be stupid, it's good to be lucky. Two, many years later, long after I could blame poor judgment on my youth, I volunteered with a horse rescue. One summer, we'd moved our herd to a new set of stables and pastures. This location was close to a fairground that hosted a Fourth of July display. Worried our horses would be panicked by the fireworks, I stepped up to take preventative measures. This meant spending several hours trying to shove handfuls of cotton into horses' ears in the dark. The retired quarter horses and cow ponies put up with it politely enough, merely shaking their heads and dislodging the cotton the moment I walked away. The high-spirited thoroughbreds and Arabians, however, were way more offended by my stuffing tickly wads into their ears than they were by the fireworks. I managed to avoid being kicked or stepped on by any annoyed equines, all of whom remained cotton-free despite my efforts. And three, this one is so gobsmackingly dumb I hesitate to confess it, but here goes. I was visiting the zoo with my school-age boys, who should have been able to look to me, out of all the people on earth, for a model of right action. Maybe it's because the cage was located right outside the children's zoo, where we'd just been feeding goats. Or maybe because its inmates, African bat-eared foxes, were so darn cute, and they were only separated from the public by little more than chicken wire. So when one of the foxes stood on its hind legs to lean against the wire and cocked its huge ears at me in its adorable puppyish way, I stuck my index finger in and waggled it. The dear little creature sniffed gently at my finger and then bit it hard. Sometimes as a parent, one is called upon to act as an example of what not to do. Last, one only by the grace of God am I here to recount this moment, ranking ten plus. This one is short. I wanted to cross the street at a busy intersection in a large, bustling city. To make sure no traffic was coming, I looked left before I stepped off the curb. Which would have been great if I were in San Francisco or Chicago or New York or Paris. Alas, I was in London. I can still feel the draft of the double-decker bus as it whizzed past me from the right, 
three inches from my face. I believe that totals thirteen, then again, I'm still very bad at math. Of course, I can only list the gaffes I have consciously registered. Stupidity is like dark matter. It's all around us. Often, it can only be inferred from its effects. Still, I find it a good spiritual practice to recall the lapses that I am aware of from time to time. It keeps me humble, and more importantly, it keeps me grateful. Because it's a miracle I'm still here. Thanks for listening to Here's a Thought with Jan M. Flynn. If you're new here, big, huge welcome. And hit the plus sign on your podcast app to follow the show. And if you've got a comment or a suggestion for a topic you'd like me to overthink, check the show notes for easy, no-risk ways to reach out to me. Until next time, may you have some compassion for your stupid side. Remember, there's a reason pencils have erasers. Just ask the guys at NASA and JPL. And may all your thoughts be good ones.